And if you're someone who believes that your society is in grave trouble, you know, or that it's on its deathbed, then you begin, you, you, it's logical that you would be attracted to extremist or radical politics. Hello, and welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. My name is Julia Ahn, and I am joined today by Franz Celia and Megan Rutkai. Despite the common belief that liberal democracies would ultimately be universalized after the end of the Cold War, authoritarian tendencies have now re-emerged throughout the world. In today's episode, we are joined by Anne Applebaum to discuss the lure of authoritarianism, especially for intellectuals, and the rise of anti-democratic trends in the West. Further expansion of the ideas discussed in today's episode can be found in Ms. Applebaum's new book, Twilight of Democracy. Anne Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic and a Pulitzer Prize-winning story. She's also an SNF Agora Senior Fellow and Associate Professor of the Practice at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. A Washington Post columnist for 15 years and a former member of the editorial board, she has also worked as the foreign and deputy editor of The Spectator magazine in London and the political editor of The Evening Standards. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Ms. Applebaum, thank you so much for joining us today. No, thanks for inviting me. We would like to start by diving a bit deeper into what democracy really is. What are the hallmarks of a liberal democracy and why is the spirit of liberalism so important to democracy? So first of all, yes, thank you for that extremely broad question. Um, I think by liberal democracy, what we mean is um, a, a form of democracy which is not the dictatorship of the majority. Um, it's a form of democracy in which there are checks and balances, in which there is separation of powers, um, in which um, minorities have rights and which defeated political parties um, have a way to make themselves heard um, even when they've lost elections. Um, so democracy that isn't just about voting, or just about what happens on the day of an election, but what happens over a long period of time. Um, I think the key to a successful democracy and to one that is that is lasting and that people feel is fair is one in which there's, you know, at least an attempt to have an even playing field so that different political parties can feel they can compete, that they can be heard, um, that they can, you know, they can, they can, they can make their arguments known. Um, whether or not they're in power. Um, so when you when you have a, a state, for example, where there's a monopoly on the media by one party or another party, then it's very difficult to see how you can have a real democracy. Or when you have a state where um, the courts and the and the um, you know the prosecutor service and the police are dependent on one party um, and can be used against the other party in a in a politicized way, that's also um, that's also a kind of, you know, that, that, you know, that's a, that's a political system that isn't really a democracy, isn't really a fully functioning democracy. Um, you know, the, the question of what is liberalism is a, seems to me a somewhat separate question from that. I mean, the, um, to, the, the, you know, democracy needs to be rule-based. It needs to be, um, um, it needs to be, and the rules have to be respected, um, not just to the letter, but in the spirit by all the players in, in the political game in order for democracy to work. Um, liberalism as a set of ideas and even as an ideology or as a political party is somewhat different. I mean, there can be liberals and conservatives inside a democracy. 
Um, there can be um, people who have different visions of what the state should be, how, how large it should be. Um, there can be different arguments about the nature of the nation inside a democracy. And, um, you know, and those can be encompassed within the, you know, within the bigger, within the bigger system. Um, I suppose you could argue that the spirit of liberalism in the most old fashioned sense is necessary for democracy because you need, um, you need a level of tolerance for different kinds of ideas. Um, if you're going to live in a democracy and share power with other people whom you don't always agree with, then there has to be some kind of fundamental agreement to respect one another. Um, and so in that very, really the most basic, oldest possible meaning of liberalism, you can say that that spirit is necessary for democracy. Now, Ms. Applebaum, seemingly on the opposite side of the spectrum of democracy is authoritarianism. And in your book, Twilight of Democracy, you state that authoritarianism attracts people from both sides of the political spectrum who cannot tolerate complexity, are anti-pluralist, suspicious of people with different ideas, and allergic to fierce debates. So could you please elaborate on this authoritarian attitude? So, I mean, authoritarianism in a way is the natural state of mankind. I mean, most societies in history have been one way or another authoritarian or maybe oligarchic um, and run by, you know, run by, you know, one person or party or group that has a monopoly on power. Um, and authoritarianism is instinctively attractive to people. I mean, and it, again, as, as, you, as you say, it doesn't have to be people on the right or people on the left. I mean, there have been, I, I, I've written several books about left-wing autocracies, um, about the Soviet Union and its client states. Um, and, you know, we, we see around the world there are also so-called right-wing autocracies. I mean, sometimes these left-wing, right-wing distinctions are pretty cosmetic. Um, you know, you can look, for example, at Venezuela right now, which is supposedly a left-wing democracy. It's, I mean, a, you know, so-called so Bolivarian socialism, communist state. And yet it also uses techniques and tactics that don't look that different from the kinds of techniques and tactics used by illiberal and right-wing authoritarian governments around the world, um, including cracking down on all of those independent institutions and on Um, you know, on courts and on media in exactly the same way that that, that right-wing authoritarians do. Um, but to elaborate on what I was saying before, it's it's important to understand that authoritarianism has an appeal. Um, all of us who, you know, grew up in the United States or in Western democracies are accustomed to thinking that democracy is automatically preferable and we don't really understand why anybody would ever be attracted to anything else, but actually there is an appeal to it. Um, there's an idea that you know, that, that if you only have one person or one small group making decisions in a society, that that might be more efficient, um, that may, maybe things can get done faster. Um, at times of crisis or when there's a great deal of chaos, people have historically wanted there to be unified power, just one person who can return a society to a secure state. Um, and even in, even in modern times, the the nature of modern democratic debate, which is very loud and bitter and often exclusionary in that many groups want to, you know, want their, uh, want to exclude their opponents from, from, from the political system. Um, in, in, in modern democracy, it can be the, this, this kind of antagonistic dialogue can also make people feel like democracy is unpleasant. It's loud, it's noisy, it's, It's inefficient. It's not dealing well with problems, and and you can you can get a kind of nostalgia for autocracy or a longing for autocracy even in 
in the most democratic societies. And so in my book, I did try to show how even people whom I've known or people who I've been acquainted with have have become enamored of anti-democratic or anti-pluralist ideas in politics. Um, and these are you know people who have who initially seemed to be pro-democracy or favorable to democracy in the past. And now that we've taken this deep dive into what is democracy, what is authoritarianism, you know, it would seem on the surface that we have either people who are, you know, pro-democracy or, you know, anti-democracy. But in fact, as you mentioned in your recent book, you describe how some people, specifically intellectuals, who are once pro-democracy have turned into supporters of authoritarian leaders. So why is it important to discuss intellectuals in the first place in regards to the rise of authoritarianism in democratic societies? So my book is about, it is about intellectuals. I mean, intellectuals in a very broad sense. So intellectuals, journalists, um, political strategists, basically people who's, who are professionally interested in ideas. And that's not, it's a pretty wide group of people. Um, it can conclude, it can be academics or it can, but it could also be people who work on political campaigns or people who make memes or bloggers or all kinds of people now fit into that category. Um, and this is an important group of people because these are the people who shape and transmit and translate political ideas and who 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 seek to spread them, you know, who seek to um, whether whether to promote democracy or to promote the interests of a particular group or, or uh, you know, a political grouping. You know, they seek to create the, um, you know, create the images and create the ideas and strategies behind those groups. Um, you know, throughout history, I mean, the, you know, saying someone is an intellectual or someone deals with ideas doesn't mean say anything about whether they're democratic or anti-democratic or left-wing or right-wing. I mean, there are right-wing intellectuals, left-wing intellectuals, um, authority, intellectuals who've ha very happily served authoritarian societies and intellectuals who've flourished in democracies or even those who's lived in democracies and haven't liked their democracies. That's, their, that, that, that's, that's also a very old tradition. Um, it's even a very old tradition, the idea of intellectuals who support or participate in democracy becoming disillusioned with their societies. Um, and one of the things I do in the book is I look back to some previous eras when this was true. Um, so I talk a little bit about um, a French writer called Julian Benda, who was writing in the 1920s um, and who wrote a book called The Treason of the Intellectuals of the, or The Treason of the Clerks, um, which was about people in his era who had um, who had become partisan. So intellectuals who were, you know, liter had been literary figures or philosophers who became part of partisan groupings and began campaigning for one side or the other in the, in the French political debate. And he predicted, and it, of course, in retrospect, it looked very, um, you know, it looked very um, almost ominous. He predicted that these intellectual debates would wind up getting millions of people killed, which is in fact what happened during the second world war. Um, um, in, in Europe. Um, I also write, you know, I, I, I reflect a little bit about on, you know, writers from the 1930s who've also described what happened when their friends became entranced by fascist ideas. Um, and I, I, I also write a little bit about slightly different phenomenon, but related, which is during the modernizing, liberalizing period of um, kind of Germany in the 19th century, um, you also had the phenomenon of intellectuals who became very disillusioned with their society, even though it was at that time economically one of the fastest moving in Europe, although it was 
becoming broader and more tolerant for a lot of people. You know, modern Germany felt like a decline from an earlier, better, simpler, more traditional era. And I also quote from a couple of German writers from that time who began to idealize the past and be- become, and they became um, kind of dismissive of, of, of German politics in their own time as kind of degenerate and unserious as opposed to the great moments in, in, in history. Um, and that is also a, a common phenomenon. And I, I mentioned these things not because it's exactly what's happening now, but because it's a, these are sort of echoes of some of the things that happen now. And it shows that um, you know, in, in intellectuals and people who work with ideas in politics um, you know, are part of a longer tradition, and that the tradition of doubting or, or, or um, being disappointed by or even hating your democratic or modernist society is a very old one. And based on your research and also your observations, um, how would you say, you know, why have some intellectuals, especially in more recent times, become disillusioned with democracy and turn towards authoritarianism, especially, um, you know, intellectuals who, you know, were pro-democracy in the past? Usually it's a function of disappointment. Um, sometimes it's personal disappointment. And I describe a few cases of that in my book. So people who haven't succeeded or haven't um, had what they thought they des- got, what they thought they deserved out of their democratic societies. And this is a very prominent phenomenon in Eastern Europe, you know, people who lived through the transition from communism to democracy and then felt that they had not, you know, they had not got what they thought they wanted from this new society or they were disappointed by it. In some cases, it's a deeper intellectual disappointment. So you have even in the United States, you know, or in, or in the UK or elsewhere, people who feel their democracies are degenerate that, you know, some, in some cases it's to do with religion and the increasing, the rapid secularization of society. People feel that this is a, this represents that we live in an era of moral decline. Um, in some cases it's people who dislike demographic change and they feel that the arrival of immigrants, whether this is particularly true in, um, in the, in the U S and Europe, that the arrival of immigrants, somehow dilutes or alters or makes society worse. And they, and they fear that that's a, you know, that's a cause or a source of national decline. Um, sometimes it's disappointment with the way their democracies work. They're, they're inefficient or they're, um, they're weak or they are, you know, in the case of Britain, there were people who were very disappointed by the way that Britain, they felt that Britain was, um, you know, had lost its voice because it was part of the European Union, so it wasn't, it didn't have the voice in the world that they wanted it to have anymore, and so they and they began campaigning for for Brexit for Britain to leave the European Union. Um, so, so usually it's a form of disappointment, and sometimes that disappointment is quite extreme. It becomes really profoundly pessimistic, even despairing. And if you're someone who believes that your society is in grave trouble, you know, or that it's on its deathbed, then you begin, you, you, it's logical that you would be attracted to extremist or radical politics because, um, you know, this may be your last chance to do something, you know, before the inevitable decline or, you know, or because you feel that this is the, you know, the last moment when, you know, to, 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 to prevent the end of something that you value. So I think, um, 
it's you, as I say, just to repeat, it's some kind of disappointment, despair, personal or political. So pivoting from intellectuals a little bit, are there common explanations for why the average person, as opposed to these intellectuals, is drawn to authoritarian candidates? Um, And is this draw of authoritarianism different from the average person? So my book isn't really about voters or average people very much. Um, again, it's a it's a it's partly a memoir, and it was meant to be a book about people that I know, and so it's very focused on people I know. Uh, it's not it's not a general thesis. It's not a political science book. Um, it doesn't try to understand all of society. Um, but I do write a little bit in the book about the work of a behavioral psychologist called Karen Stenner. Um, who has looked at the question of why people, some people are attracted to authoritarian ideas or sentiments. And one of the conclusions that she comes to is that it's often a reaction to complexity or rapid change. Um, And that for some people, um, the speed with which society changes and the loss of certain kinds of traditional anchors, you know, family or um, you know, a, 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 you know, certain kinds of civic institutions, whether it's the church or whether it's um, local groups and organizations that have that have grown weaker over time, um, that for some people, the loss of those things has made them um, both nostalgic for the past and also impatient with um, with the with the with the you know the sort of loud noise of democracy in the present, um, and has and has caused them to want to return to a kind of simpler and easier way of thinking. Um, that's, that's, that's her thesis. And I, I write about that a little bit because it's the, it's, it's many of the, you know, intellectuals and journalists and, you know, um, cam, you know, campaign strategists I write about have used that insight. In other words, have tried to reach people with an authoritarian instinct and have sought to appeal to their instincts by, um, by offering some kind of alternative. But, but it's, it's important, one of the things that is important about Stenner is that what she writes about is an authoritarian predisposition. Um, I don't think it's the case that anybody is, I, so if it's like, I don't believe in an authoritarian personality. In other words, I don't believe there are some people who like dictatorship and some people who don't. I mean, a lot depends on the conditions and the situation. I mean, in a situation of extreme violence and chaos, for example, you know, in a civil war, um, people will almost, oh, everybody will give up some of their freedom in exchange for security. Um, you know, in other situations where people feel threatened, but lots of people feel threatened um, by some kind of enemy or by, um, again, by immigration or economic change, or maybe even by the coronavirus, um, people will also be ready to give up freedom. Um, and then there are some people who can be, you know, for whom it takes less persuasion um, because they, um, you know, they see the advantages of security, stability, um, you know, and, and an end to argument. And they see those as more important than, you know, the, 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 the liberal democracy. Ms. Apple, you've also in the past written a lot about the rise of social media and disinformation. And so, so I want to ask you with this latest iteration of authoritarianism, um, whereas it's in spirit here in the United States and in Britain through Brexit or in Eastern Europe, would would this latest iteration of authoritarianism, especially on the far right, have been possible without the rise of social media platforms that have allowed misinformation and 
apocalyptic visions to spread. So that's one of the things I do argue in the book. Um, a lot of people disagree with me, and they um, and they link the rise of the far right to other things. They link it to economics and again to demographic change. And while I don't sort of don't at all deny that those things are important, I actually think that the major political transformations we're seeing are um, are deeply connected. To, it's not just social media; it's just the change in the way that people get and process political information. Um, the way they, the way the, the loss of some kind of hierarchy. So, you know, people get news on their phone, you know, um, one minute it's an advertisement for hairspray. And then the next minute it's a message from their cousin. And then, the, then it's a message about, you know, people being gunned down in the street in Belarus. Okay. And the, and there's no hierarchy to that information. There's no sense of what's important and what's not, um, you know, in a world where you can just flick the screen and, and, and look at something different. Um, and while there are many advantages to this new world, and there are all kinds of ways in which the information revolution is great and liberating and, and, and so on, it has also had the effect of enabling people with um, extreme views, for example, to find one another um, and to organize online. And it's also helped, um, as I said, it's helped some people find ways of reaching other people in the society who agree with them. You know, it, it's it's um, uh, it's a uh, it, you know it's a it's a way you know there are ways of creating new communities, alternative communities online, and that's both good and bad. I mean, you can um, you can you can create you know positive civic organizations online, and you can also create hate groups online. Um, and I, I do think that the the nature of modern media has made it easier. Um, yeah, um, easier to do than it was in the past. And, and you know, re regarding your original question, of course, it's much easier to spread misinformation than it ever has been. I mean, you know, the human race is, is very liable to believe gossip and rumor and always has been. But it used to be that, you know, gossip spread slowly or moved anyway, it moved orally. And now, of course, you can, you can, you can spread a lie in, in a few seconds, you can reach millions of people, whereas it used to take, it used to, that used to be impossible. And so the, the 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 spread and multiplication of misinformation and deliberately designed disinformation campaigns have also altered politics and the way that people see the world, you know, you know, in very profound ways. After the Cold War ended, many people believed that democracy would ultimately continue to spread throughout the world. However, this has not necessarily happened. You know, democracies have stumbled in some areas. Why, in your opinion, has democracy not spread like pundits, like some pundits predicted 25 years ago? Well, democracy did spread, actually. I mean, if you if you look at the number of countries that you could describe as democracies and you compare them, you know, now to at any time previously in history, it's, you know, I mean, it's there, there's no comparison. I mean, the, 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 the map was, was permanently altered. Um, you know, there have been several waves of democratization. Um, you know, and a, and a big one did follow the end of the Cold War, um, particularly in Europe, uh, but not only. Um, but yes, I mean, some, you know, the 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 thing that's happening now that's new and unusual. I mean, there have always been um, countries that you know backslide on democracy. I mean, there are many books and political science studies written about why some countries have backslid, and you know, but what's happening now that's new and unusual is the challenge to democracy in the countries that were thought to be um, the most, um, the safest, um, and in particular, the United States. So, 
you know, so while it's not all that surprising that, you know, democracy might falter in Russia where it's never really, you know, where it's never worked in the past, you know, or or in Latin America where there's a history of, you know, military, you know, military coups and so on. It is surprising that in the United States there has been that some of the institutions that were considered so important to democracy have been challenged and where we, for example, even now have a president who is um, hints heavily and publicly, for example, that he hopes to damage the postal service in order to make um, absentee balloting, balloting, uh, absentee voting uh, more difficult in the next election and where you have sort of open attempts to make voting hard. Um, and that kind of that kind of open assault on this principle that we talked about at the beginning and this principle that there should be an even playing field and everybody should have the opportunity to vote and everybody should be able to compete for votes in some kind of you know, in some kind of fair way, um, an assault on those principles from the president of the United States is something new. Like we just haven't had that in modern history. Um, and so it's really that, um, you know, it's really that that's different. I mean, that, again, that democracy would be challenged in Brazil where, where that's happened before isn't so surprising, but that it would be challenged in the United States is very surprising. Um, and that I think, again, I think, you know, that's a longer conversation, but I mean, the explanations for that have to do with, um, have to do with the nature of American democracy, the corruption in American democracy, the use of money in politics, um, as well as the social changes in media and the way that people get information that we talked about already. Earlier, you mentioned that people may become disillusioned with democracy during times of rapid societal change. Do you think that this accelerating pace of change is one of the reasons why we have seen challenges to establish democracies? And can democracies become better adapted to the fast-changing times that we are living in? Yeah, I do think rapid pace of change is part of it. Um, and it's both economic change and social change, um, as well as the change, as I said, in, 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 in information. And it can, in these times, it can feel like democratic institutions are somehow, you know, they're, they seem left behind, you know, in a moment when you can press a button on your telephone and someone will deliver a new pair of shoes to you the next morning, it can seem just unfathomable that it can take so long to, you know, to form a government coalition or to make decisions. And people become very frustrated by the process um, in a world where things happen so much more efficiently and quickly in other spheres. Um, and yes, I do think this is a concern. I mean, I think that in the U.S. Um, in particular, the upgrading of democratic you know, even just you know the the ways in which we vote and the ways in which we debate, um, and the ways in which we communicate. Um, you know, it's there's there's a desperate need for change, and there's also a desperate need for a revitalization of the bureaucracy, digitalization. You know, more efficient ways of doing things that will give people more confidence in the in the political system in the state. And that's true, actually, in in many, although not all, modern democracies. Some of them have caught up and are. Um, are efficient in ways that America is not. To wrap, up, to wrap us up, one message that I took away from your book is that democracy is not guaranteed to us. And, uh, you know, it's up to us to protect democracy and democratic values. Uh, first, is this a fair assessment? And if so, could you elaborate and maybe tell our listeners how they can protect democracy in their own countries? So yes, that is if it, that is the main lesson, I and mean, that is the conclusion of the book. Um, that you know, there's no such thing as a as forever, and democracies do die, and they always have. 
Um, and, and if you care about it, you might have to participate. Um, and you know, what I would say, especially to people your age, um, is to remember is to join things. Um, it doesn't have to be a political party, um, but it could be a, you know, an election monitoring group, or, you know, you could be, you could sit on your local electoral commission, or you could run for a local office. Um, think of politics as something that you do. It's not just for specialists, you know, it's not just for, you know, a few people who have studied political scientists and follow elections. Politics is for everybody. And if you care about it, you might have to play some role in it or anyway, more of a role than you thought you were going to have to play. Um, I think we've all become to the use, use to the idea that democracy is like running water. You know, you don't have to think about where the water comes from. You just turn on the tap. Um, and that's actually not the case anymore. You do have to think about it. You do have to participate. You should pay attention to what's going on in your local community. Um, you know, think about running for office, you know, think about helping someone else run for office. Think about being on, you know, think, you know, a relevant committee or joining a relevant organization. Um, that's that's what I would say to your listeners. Well, Miss Applebaum, thank you very much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, give us a subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.